This show contains descriptions of violent crimes and may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. On May 27th, 2006, at 2.52 a.m., the police get a call from a 13-year-old girl named Natalie. She's standing outside an apartment building, naked and barefoot. She's just wearing the coat she managed to grab before she fled. Still in the apartment she fled from is the perpetrator and Natalie's best friend, Denise, and also a six-year-old boy. This is the sad story of drugs, violence, and the rape and killing of a 12-year-old girl. Welcome to episode 19 of True Crime Sweden. I am your host, Panilla. Before we get into today's case, I have two announcements to make. The first one is the winner of the Wooden Dollar Horse. I've been laughing and enjoying each participant's entries. You are so wonderful, all of you. Thanks for participating. It was really hard to decide who was the final winner, but I had to pick one. And the winner entered the following five emojis. And I think it uh, concludes the podcast in a great way. There was a microscope, love, a brain, fika, and a scale for the justice system. And the winner is... Mary Beth Holden Gustafsson from the U.S. Congratulations! I will get in touch with you, Mary Beth, to get your address. The competition turned out to be a success, so we will definitely be having more of those in the future. And the second announcement is that next summer I am going to be at the True Crime Podcast Festival in Chicago in July and I really hope to see you there. It's a one-day event on Saturday July 13th and you can go to tcpf2019.com to find out more and to buy tickets. tcpf2019.com I really hope to see you there. There are a lot of awesome podcasts attending, so you don't want to miss it. But now, let's get into today's case.
This is a horrible story of how two young girls who were having a sleepover on a Friday night, and that sleepover ends up with one of them being killed and the other one being raped. But let's go back a little bit in the story. The girls who this is all about is named Natalie and Denise, two best friends. Natalie lived with her parents and two siblings in a beautiful house in Tungelsta. Her mother was pregnant and had only a few weeks left on her pregnancy. Natalie and Denise had been friends since kindergarten and were now in sixth grade together. Natalie had turned 13 that spring, but Denise's birthday was not coming up until December, so she was only 12 years old. They did everything together. They loved playing soccer and hanging out. Denise and Natalie played soccer in the local club Tungelsta IF twice a week and they played games on the weekends. Denise was known to be a real fighter on the soccer field. She would never give up on that ball. And she was a very talented player. She was fast and she had a good eye for the game. When Natalie and Denise did not hang out together and play soccer, they would stay in contact through text messages and their blogs. Back in 2006, blogs had become very popular among teenage girls in Sweden, and they both had their own space where they would post regularly. They were just like any other girls that age. Denise lived with her mother in an apartment in Westerhaninge every other week since her parents divorced five years earlier. Westerhaninge is really close to Tungelsta, where Natalie lived. And Westerhaninge is a locality situated in Haninge, south of Stockholm. It had about 15,000 inhabitants in 2010. It is connected to Stockholm by commuter rail. It's about 22 kilometers or 13 miles from the center of Stockholm. And here I just have to put this in because I got an email from a listener from Montana called Ben. Hi Ben and thank you so much for writing me. Ben said he'd like to look up the places I talk about on Google Maps. But it's uh, hard sometimes to guess on the spelling on the Swedish uh, names of towns. Well, I hear you, Ben. If you want to look up Westerhaninge, it's spelled like this. It's a V, and then there's an A with two dots over it, and then S-T-E-R-H-A-N-I-N-G-E. I tried to Google Map it just by using a regular A instead of the A with the two dots. So you can try that as well. It worked for me. And then it's V-A-S-T-E-R-H-A-N-I-N-G-E. Okay, enough of that. Back to Denise's story. In 2004, Denise's mother met a younger man at the gym where they both worked out. His name was Kenny, and he had a son from a previous relationship. The two started dating, and after about a year, Kenny and his son 
moved in permanently. Denise did not like this at first. She wanted to stay with her father on a more permanent basis instead. But her mom and dad wanted to keep the arrangements with every other week. So that arrangement continued. She had to accept what was decided for her, and she did the best she could, given the circumstances. After some time, she started taking a liking in Kenny, and they became friends. Let's talk a little bit about Kenny and who he was. If you look at his criminal record, his first offense was in 1998, when he was 19 years old. But according to testimonies of his friends and family, his violent behavior had been there from a very early age. Because of his drinking problems, he would get into fights all the time as a teenager, and he didn't finish high school. In 1998, he was convicted of infliction of damage, and he was sentenced to pay a fine. His first serious offense happened a year after that, in 1999. He was then sentenced to one year probation for two counts of assault, unlawful threat and affliction of damage. The incident took place in a local bar in Vesterhaninge, where Kenny was drinking with his pregnant girlfriend and her friend. Let's call the pregnant girlfriend Linda and her friend Sarah. Kenny was drinking heavily, and a little after midnight, he fell asleep at the bar, lying with his arms on the table. The security guards noticed and woke him up to tell him he needed to leave the premises immediately. They all stood up to leave, when the pregnant Linda lights a cigarette. Since she was pregnant with his son, Kenny starts complaining and tells her how disappointed he is that she is still smoking. Linda counteracts by telling him what a hypocrite he is since he wasn't complaining about her smoking earlier that night, as long as he was drinking beer. Kenny was very provoked by this comment and he became more and more aggressive. Sarah, the friend, tries to calm him down by blocking him from Linda and speaking to him in a calm voice. Out of nowhere, Kenny hits Sarah in the face. She reacts by turning to Linda and asks her to get out of there with her. Linda says no, knowing that this would only make things worse. And as Sarah is walking away from them, Kenny yells, If you file a police report, I will kill you. Linda and Kenny left the pub together shortly thereafter. They took a short walk to the apartment building they lived in. During the short walk, Kenny tells Linda that he is, and I quote, going to beat the shit out of her when they come inside. Shortly before they reach the apartment building, Kenny stops to pee in some bushes. Linda is scared and sees this as an opportunity to get away. She runs to the next apartment building, where Kenny's sister and her partner lives. She knocks on the door and she is let in by the two, and then Linda calls the police. 
Can he understand where Linda went? And he goes after her and starts banging on the door to be let in. As he is kicking and screaming, the door is almost caving in and his sister's partner feels compelled to open it. As soon as it opens, Kenny comes running in. He immediately hits his sister's partner in the face and continues into the kitchen where Linda is hiding. Kenny asks Linda if she is afraid of him and she replies that she's really scared of him when he's acting like this. Good, you should be afraid of me, Kenny says. And then he goes on about how the baby probably isn't his and how he is going to beat the shit out of her when they get home. Somehow things start to calm down after that. Kenny realizes that he's out of line and he leaves the apartment without Linda. The day after that, Linda's friend Sarah files a police report and Kenny is taken in for questioning and is later sentenced to one year probation. The year after, he is sentenced to two years in prison on account of two counts of assault and lawful threat. Kenny threatened to kill his then-girlfriend, her daughter, their newborn son, and a friend who was in the apartment at the time of the occurrence. After threatening them, he said he was going to kill himself. When he got out of prison, he was quickly sentenced again for a drug offense and unlawful driving. He was like an accident waiting to happen whenever he left the house. His friends and family later states that Kenny was in a really bad mental state and that they tried their best to get him some help. Kenny later voluntarily checked himself in for psychiatric care but the hospital wouldn't keep him for long. In 2002, only days after he was released from the hospital, he again committed aggravated assault, unlawful driving, and drunk driving. This time, Kenny and a friend went on a beating streak one night after having been drinking heavily. Completely unprovoked, they hit a man to the ground and then continued by kicking him in the face. Kenny is again convicted to two years in prison, but this time the court sent him for a psychiatric evaluation before sending him off to prison. The psychiatrist found him to be able to serve prison time, but they also found that he suffers from three personality disorders, all of which are important explanations to why he is constantly getting himself into trouble. Antisocial personality disorder, which means a persuasive pattern of disregard for and violation of the rights of others. Lack of empathy, bloated self-image, manipulative and impulsive behavior. Also, borderline personality disorder, a pervasive pattern of abrupt mood swings, instability in relationships, self-image, identity, behavior, and effect, often leading to self-harm and impulsivity. And finally, narcissistic personality disorder, a pervasive pattern of grandiosity, need for admiration, 
and a perceived or real lack of empathy. Kenny got out of prison in 2004 and was quickly arrested again for unlawful driving, drunk driving and a drug offense. He was sentenced to community service, probably because the court knew of his personality disorders and his will to make positive changes in his life. This did not last long though. In 2005 he was arrested again for drunk and unlawful driving and again only sentenced to community service. A month before the events of this case, Kenny was arrested by the police again. He was so violent that the police had to use mace to bring him in. The pattern was the same. Kenny was drinking in a local bar. Something upset him and he went berserk and assaulted someone. When telling you about his criminal past, I get really upset with the legal system in our country. This is obviously a man who has big, big problems with both drugs, alcohol and personality disorders. I just don't understand why he wasn't being sent back to prison when he re-offended. Or at least had some serious conditions on his community service sentence, like regular drug testing or something. And I also want to add that we don't know anything about how much Denise's mother knew about his past. But she must have been aware of the latest sentence because it only happened a month before the tragedy. And I also have a hard time accepting how this man could have custody of a six-year-old son. A person who is committing violent crimes again and again doesn't seem to be a suitable parent to me. But now it's time to get into the events that took place on Friday, May 26th. 2006. The two girls, Nathalie and Denise, finished school around 3 p.m. that day and went home to Denise's mom's apartment in Westerhaninge. Natalie and Denise had a great time that afternoon. They were laughing and hanging out, enjoying the fact that the weekend was upon them. Kenny ordered pizza for dinner and he bought snacks and candy for a movie night. He was in a really good mood. He told jokes and hang out with the girls. Everyone was having fun and Natalie didn't want the night to end, so she called her parents and asked if she could spend the night at Denise's. She had done so many times before, and the only difference this night was that Denise's mother was in the hospital, but Kenny was there to take care of them. At 10 p.m., neighbors state they met Kenny, Natalie, Denise, and Kenny's six-year-old son and their dog on their way to the local video store. It's about five minutes away from the apartment. Natalie says 
They went to the store, but it had already closed, and Kenny was disappointed. He had promised the girls a movie night, and now he had to find a backup plan. They went back to the apartment building. While Denise stayed in the apartment with the six-year-old, Natalie and Kenny went to a neighbor's and borrowed a couple of DVDs. They got back at about 10.45 p.m. and started watching the movie. It was getting late for the little boy and he was put to bed in the nearest bedroom. Kenny, Denise and Natalie were sitting on the couch in the living room, eating snacks and candy, watching the movie. The girls had coke to drink and Kenny was drinking beer. Natalie later tells the police that Kenny was going back and forth to the kitchen to get yet another beer, but he did not strike her as drunk. Kenny's phone kept ringing, and it was Denise's mother calling from the hospital. Natalie later states to the police, I could hear Denise's mother asking him if he had been drinking but he had a calm voice and they were not fighting. The last phone call was at one in the morning. It was Denise's mother again calling to say goodnight and she told Kenny it was time for the girls to go to bed. Kenny hung up the phone and went into the six-year-old's bedroom to check up on him. After only a few seconds, he is yelling to Denise, Hurry up, come over here, quick. Denise sat up from the couch and went over there to see what was going on. Natalie stayed in the living room, finishing her bottle of Coke and had a mouthful of popcorn. She could hear the bedroom door closing behind Denise. And right after that, a loud scream from inside the room. Natalie later states to the police, I heard thumps and noise, like furniture breaking and screaming. We had been watching a horror movie, and at first I thought Kenny and Denise were joking, like a practical joke, you know. But then everything suddenly got real quiet, and I just froze. Natalie couldn't begin to understand what had just happened. She stayed in the living room petting the dog and eating the popcorn. After a while, Kenny comes out of the room and approaches her. He had changed his pants from the white cockies he was wearing before to dark shorts. He was wiping his hand with paper towels and he had a weird look on his face. Natalie's heart was beating so fast and her face was white when she asked him where Denise was. She started walking towards the bedroom, but Kenny wouldn't let her. He said Denise was not feeling well because her mother is in a hospital, and that she already went to bed. He continued by saying how Denise is going to sleep in the six-year-old's bedroom, and put his arm around Natalie while gently pushing her back into the living room couch. Denise wanted me to tell you that she wants you to sleep in my bed, Kenny then says. This made Natalie very uncomfortable. 
At first, she thought he was joking because it was such an absurd thing to say. Kenny got up from the couch and went back to the bedroom again, saying he was going to check on the kids. And then he comes back again and goes into the kitchen. Natalie could hear him going through the drawers, one by one. And then finally he seems to find what he was looking for, and he slammed them shut. It is now two in the morning of May 27th, and Kenny comes out of the kitchen with a huge knife in his hands. Natalie could see the blood on his hands, and she started to fear for her life. Kenny was still not acting intoxicated, but there was something about his behavior that struck her as weird. Kenny continues by saying, You are going to listen to me. You hear me? If you listen to me, everything will be fine. But if you don't, things won't end well. He tells Natalie to go to his bedroom, and when she doesn't respond immediately, he started yelling at her. Get over here. She was scared beyond belief and was starting to tremble, feeling nauseous and very anxious. I dared not scream. I was in shock, Natalie states to the police. I was trying to speak calmly to him, like a friend. I knew something really bad had happened, but I didn't dare to do anything out of fear of him becoming angry with me. He spoke with a weird voice, and there was something off about his eyes. Kenny has the knife in his hand, and he forces Natalie to take her clothes off. Otherwise, he would kill her. He laid her down on his bed and raped her. And when he was finished, he raised his arm and stabbed her in the neck. It all happened very fast, but Natalie saw the motion of the arm and managed to move her head slightly to the left to prevent the blade from hitting her windpipe. He continued stabbing her in the stomach and in the back. The last slash of the knife was so brute that the knife broke in two parts. He stopped what he was doing and went into the kitchen to get a new knife. Natalie laid still on the bed, waiting for her last seconds on earth and for this to be all over. When Kenny comes back to the bedroom, he lies down next to her and grabs her hand. She could tell that he seemed to be very sleepy and sluggish, and they lay next to each other on the blood-covered bed. As Kenny slowly falls asleep, still holding Natalie's hand, he says, There's something seriously wrong with me. Tomorrow I'm going to kill myself. You know what I have done. I'll kill myself before you have a chance to go to the police. Natalie laid still, waiting for Kenny to drift off. When he turned his body to the right, his hand lost his grip on hers. 
That was the first time Natalie realized that there might be a way out of this nightmare. She waited for a couple more minutes until she heard him falling into deep sleep and he started snoring. Her neck was bleeding profusely and she found it harder and harder to breathe. Right now, her biggest concern was losing consciousness because of the blood loss and that made her even more intent on escaping this madman. Natalie slowly turned to the left, sneaked out of the bed and crawled on the floor towards the door. She figured that he wouldn't see her if he woke up if she was creeping on the floor. She moved very slowly and quietly, saying it took her about 10 minutes to move from the bed until she was out of the bedroom. Then she tried opening the door three times before she managed to get it up. She then found herself naked in the hallway, anxiously looking for something to cover herself with. She found her coat that was hanging next to Denise's, and she ran out the door as quickly as she could. She made it out alive, thank God. When she gets down on the street, she calls the police and tells them to come right away. And she later tells the police that while she was standing there on the street, barefoot, all bloody, and only wearing a coat, several cars passed her. They just looked at her, and no one stopped to see if she was okay, or to help her. About an hour later, at four in the morning, Natalie's mother was woken up by the phone. Remember, she's eight months pregnant and not worried at all because her daughter is staying the night at her best friend's, as she had many times before. The police on the other end of the phone tells her that her daughter Natalie had been stabbed and that she needed to come to the hospital right away. She immediately jumped to the conclusion that something must have happened to her while walking the streets of Vesterhaninge in the middle of the night. But what were the girls doing outside at this hour? Her head was spinning with questions. She and Natalie's father quickly drove to the hospital to be with her daughter. The family reunited and the events that happened that night started to become clear to the parents. Natalie kept asking the hospital staff where Denise was, if she was in the same hospital. And they had to tell her again and again that Denise didn't make it. Her best friend in the whole world was dead. Natalie just couldn't take this in. While Natalie was taken to the hospital for care, six more police cars arrived at the murder scene. When the police got the call and realized who this man was, 
They wouldn't enter the apartment without backup. The perpetrator was well known by the authorities, and he had a long criminal record. Kenny was sound asleep when the heavily armed police force entered the apartment. He acted very confused and dazed when they abruptly woke him up. His first words were, I have been fighting with wolves tonight, and I think I may have killed one of them. The first policeman at the scene said it looked like a slaughterhouse in there. So much blood everywhere he looked. Kenny was also covered in blood. He was wearing only a tank top. They cuffed him, both hands and feet, and they took him to the hospital for stitches since he had hurt himself on the knife. Still in the room with a dead 12-year-old lay the 6-year-old boy. He was physically unharmed, but probably with some mental scars. He was taken care of by child protection authorities that same night. When Kenny was taken to the hospital, they examined him and ran some blood work on him. When analyzing the blood, it turns out that he had a cocktail of drugs, steroids and alcohol in him. Besides the alcohol that the girls saw him drink, he also had benzodiazepine, cocaine, amphetamine, marijuana and growth hormones in his bloodstreams. That combo made this man turn into a murdering beast that Friday night. As you know, this wasn't his first violent crime, but it was the first time that he had killed someone. Natalie had to go through some surgery, and she was allowed to leave the hospital a couple of days later. On the way home, they drove past the local church and went in to see the picture of Denise sitting on the table by the altar, surrounded by flowers. She left a letter for Denise by the picture frame, summarizing what their friendship had meant to her and how she would never forget her. In August of 2006, Kenny was sentenced to life imprisonment on account on first-degree murder, attempted murder, assault, statutory rape, resisting arrest, and serious drug offenses. In the courtroom, when Denise's biological father was taking the stand, he looked at Kenny and said, She was my only daughter, you know. The whole courtroom was silently listening to the words of a man in such deep pain it is hard to take in. He continued to say, You have a kid yourself, right? Do you miss your son? Kenny said yes. And he said, I miss my daughter like crazy. But it's an endless pain. I just want you to know that the guys in prison 
They are patiently waiting for your arrival. When the day came for Denise's funeral, the church was filled with family and friends, a lot of them still in disbelief. It was a loss so unexpected and impossible to wrap your head around. A teddy bear, a candle, and two framed photos of Denise were placed by the altar. Two handwritten letters from her father was laid out for everyone to read. The first letter said, You are still alive in my heart, my dear. You are the most beautiful and adorable girl on this earth. Good night, my princess. See you in paradise. The second letter addresses the question everyone was asking. It said, I don't have the words to express the emptiness, sadness I'm feeling right now. As always, I think about you every minute and every second. Why, why, why? I am still your father, and you are still my daughter. And we will see each other again, I know it. A thousand hugs and kisses. I love you so. I haven't been able to find anything about Denise's mother, but I can imagine that she has been working with a feeling of guilt for bringing that man into her and her daughter's life. But how should she have known? If he didn't tell her about his violent past, there was no way for her to know. Being a mother of two teenage girls myself, I keep thinking about how something like this could happen. My kids stay at their friends' houses overnight sometimes, and I think I know their parents. But do I really? Natalie, that survived this tragedy, wrote the following on her blog five years after the events. Tonight, five years ago, I lost my best friend, Denise. We went through a horrible night together, and I think about it every day, all the time. I will never forget, will never forget you, Denise. I love you with all my heart, and every day I wish there was something I could do to get you back. You were only 12 years old. Listen to that. 12 years old. Someone so innocent and sweet did not deserve what happened to you. No one can ever answer that question. I think about you and I miss you every day, sweetheart. I am coping and dealing with this my own way. I think about you my way. I just do it my way, plain and simple. I love you and I want you back. I hope you are doing fine up there, honey. I know you are. You are always in my heart, with me all the time. It just doesn't matter. You are my everything. You are an angel. Forever.
and Kenny, who was sentenced to life in prison, is still locked up. I found a short mention of him in an article about another horrible man, Niklas Lindgren, a.k.a. Hagamannen. This man, Hagamannen, is a man that kept the city of Umeå in fear for several years when he attacked and raped women in a part of town called Haga, and then he got the name The Haga Man. I'm doing an episode about him and his crimes in the near future. But anyway, this article that I read was about that Kenny had beaten the Haga man inside prison. And that Kenny after this was transferred to another maximum security prison. The article didn't say what the fight was about. I hope that Kenny is going to stay locked up. For a long, long time to come. Thank you so much for listening to episode 19 of True Crime Sweden. This episode was researched and written by me, but mostly by Johanna Udstål Friberg. Thank you so much, Johanna. It's almost time for today's fun facts. Just a few things first. If you want to discuss the cases further and be a part of a great group of people, you're welcome to join the True Crime Sweden discussion group on Facebook. Just search for True Crime Sweden discussion group and answer a question about why you want to join and we will let you in. The reason for the question is not to let fake accounts who post weird things into the group. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram, just search for True Crime Sweden. And you can email me at truecrimesweden at gmail.com. I also have a Patreon page if you feel like donating to the podcast. I send out stickers and bookmarks to my patrons. And if you join at a higher level, you also receive a dollar horse keychain or a pin. Johanna is putting in a lot of time writing and researching for me, and my dream is to be able to pay her for her time. Right now, she is doing all the work out of the goodness of her heart. Bless you, Johanna. You can find it on patreon.com slash truecrimesweden. Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And don't forget to buy tickets to the True Crime Podcast Festival in Chicago on July 13th, 2019. Go to tcpf2019.com and find out more. I would really love to meet some of my listeners in person. And now over to today's fun fact. Today I'm going to tell you a little bit about companies that you probably are familiar with that actually was created here in Sweden. Let's start out with a question. Have you ever played Candy Crush? I'm guessing that the answer to that question is yes. Most of us have played. And if you haven't played, you probably heard of it at least. The company behind Candy Crush, King, was started in 2003 by five Swedes. Lars Markgren, Patrik Stimne 
Thomas Hartvig, Ricardo Sacconi and Sebastian Knudsson. In 2015, a company called Activision Blizzard bought King and the founders ended up with between 520 million US dollars down to 107 million dollars each. It's hard to even imagine how much money that is. And another thing you probably heard of is Minecraft. But did you know that it, it was invented by a guy named Marcus Persson, who started the company Mojang, or as we would say in Swedish, Mojang, which means thing or thingy. As you probably can guess, Marcus has all the money he could wish for, but he is still working on a new game because he loves what he does. And almost everyone knows that IKEA is Swedish. But did you know that Spotify was started in April 2006 by the two Swedes, Daniel Ek and Martin Lorenzon? Today, about 200 million people all over the world use Spotify. And then we have Skype that was invented in 2003 by Swedes Niklas Sandström and Dane Janus Fries. They sold Skype in 2011 for 8,500 million US dollars. I know this fun fact turned into me bragging about how great we are, but the thing that amazes me is that we are around 10 million people in Sweden, a fairly small country, and still we manage to produce some great stuff that people use in everyday life all over the world. That is kind of cool. Well, that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening and I hope to see you next time. Goodbye. Hej då.